Books of Alice Prologue The Tale of the Dancing Girl and the Gym Hey, I'm Alice. I want to start our story today with a question. Why me? Everybody asks that. And let's face it, there aren't that many people who find out. But for me, it was a long and torturous journey, one that didn't come to a satisfying conclusion. Yet at the end, I found it. And I can tell you right now, there is no simple reveal. It takes a series of stories, side journeys, and many outrageous accidents. But where to start? I know. Let's start with the tale of the dancing girl and the gin. It is a field of sand rolling, shimmering into the black eternity, subjugated by heavy night. Stars fill up the eyes of the girl, who lies there atop the dune in awe of her majesty knight's robes. They weigh upon the girl's body, her chest heaves. The vastness fills her head to bursting. A man far below the dune, paces the plain, calls out her name. The dancing girl's thoughts are so filled with haze, she cannot hear him, but the sky hears her and watches amused. The stars twinkle at the sight. Something else notices her, red eyes blinking in the distance, almost like two tiny bonfires burning hot but slow. They rise up from the sand. They have always been there since before the earth was dust. The man far below strains his voice. He becomes desperate. He wants to save his daughter from what he knows lurks atop the dunes. Come down or I will take you down, he shouts, but he makes no move toward the top of the hill. The wind races to meet her speed. It, whatever these red eyes are, comes crawling towards her. No, she states, and keeps dancing. I will not steal my heart for you, or for anyone. I am not afraid. She will see it, but it will stand. Then say it its jaws when she has finished. Those that have come to this place are found in the morning, dead, disappeared forever to never be found by any tribe across all the Persian plains. Yet she will see it. Its breath is hoarse. Even if it does not need to breathe, it wants her to know that it is near. Ah! She stops and shines a smile. Are you the man of my dreams? <laughs> she giggles, low and guttural as a tiger. It is quiet. Watches her like a cat, waiting to jump. 
her father hears the exchange as it echoes down below and in his heart he writes her an elegy ode to a beautiful daughter and wishes that she could hear his prayer hear his heart he is far below his feet twist in the sand he hears the talk and his fears pull him apart tell me she steps toward the black shape forming her hips sway her eyes lilt do you like my dance or are you a pervert it is silent only quietly hissing she stands and waits. She will not dance for hissing. You are not afraid of me. And the words sound as backwards words being said forwards. Afraid? <laughs> she throws her head back and laughs. I do not fear the tiger hunting the field. I do not fear the great Jazar tribe and its ten nations' army, nor the citadel of Ur. Bring your spears and claws and kings. I will take them all, and I will bite and scratch at them until they are morsels of flesh. Some might say you are a foolish little girl. That is because they are sad and without purpose. And you have one? Why should I tell you? And who has granted you this purpose? The Lord of Light or his brother in the eternal darkness? I did. The gods will be angry. Let them. She shouts and laughs. Ha! And it laughs and gnashes its teeth. They gnash their teeth together. A dust devil whirls around her. Sand tendrils fold her body into their hold. The father's eyes grow wide at this. His brow shudders. He starts up the hill before it's too late. The winds screech loudly, battering him with sand. Is his daughter screaming or howling? How will she be transformed by this creature? Her father works his legs until they burn he claws his way to the top of the hill in time to see his daughter being carried off into the night enfolded into night's glorious velvet robes he will never see her again the top of the dune is empty but he finds a small metal stone with a hieroglyph etched into its face, the eternal night, the being who is not a brother of the Lord of Light. It will become his god, this stone. It is something bigger, more horrible, than his or any mortal mind could possibly encompass. But for now... He scans the sky, and there is only blackness, stars, and the thin line of light that will be the day. Daughter evaporated by light. He will not stop watching. He will not stop searching. 
He will travel far and wide through every trading town, through village and traveling tribe. He will listen to the stories of a girl who howls and the djinn who follows her. Both are fierce, both inseparable, not to be crossed. They are the ones who fell lions and kings and titans. He hears and he mourns, and he loves her shadow, her legend, for an idea is all he has left of her. She is now only a story. His story will twist around hers. He carries her name in his heart until he lays down in a cave and carves it in the roof of the stone just underneath the hieroglyph of the eternal night. The stone will not be seen for a thousand years, but he knows her story will continue. I startle awake covered in tiny prickles of sweat. That dream is so weird, I shout out. I'm sure that I can feel bits of sand chunking up under my fingernails and into my bikini areas, lungs, breathing out dust like an ancient mummy from one of those corny monster features. And then I hear it, that voice whispering in my head, Undress. I scatter towards my lamistatol on my night table. No, no! I think as my journal, pen, troll dolls, and reading book scattered to the floor. I'm not having that thought again. Be normal, be normal, be normal. And no, I do not see the creature in the corner, smiling his jagged smile and knitting a hipster beanie in his long scraggly nails. Dr. Newman says that that's just a leftover hallucination from my childhood. There's no such thing as past lives, or ESP, or demons, or angels, or ghosts. Evil spirits aren't trying to enchant us or eat our souls. It's just the mind playing tricks on itself. Be normal. Be normal. Be normal. The seeds of bones, wood gates and locks, no boats or rocks, and free to roam. Versus the purple people eater. There's a monster who lives across the street from my apartments. Now, I know what you're thinking. You mean like maniac, evil Dexter killer type? Or, oh, serial rapist sneaking his cloven, metaphorical cloven, feet around? No. I mean a giant, furry, purple, people-eating, googly-eyed, cookie-monster-looking monster. Though, he looks like Mr. Fulton when I'm on my meds. Every morning, I watch him waddle from his front door to his bug of a smart car, which jumps when he sits in it. Actually, let me back up. There's two of them. There's the bright egg-shaped bird lady, a retiree, but she just puddles about in her garden. Oh, sure. Too much PBS, you say. But I'm only describing what I'm seeing. Promises. Maybe Jim Henson saw monsters? Ever think of that? Mr. Fulton, on the other hand, is... Not a very nice man. Sure, 
His smooth, round, apple-cheeked face seems babyish in a sweet, soft way. But I have seen him do things. He wanders so noiselessly through the crowds that you never notice his claws snap in the air at the small of someone's back. He's so quiet, so ineffectual in his boring little brown suit that he mesmerizes you into a state of monotony. You don't know that he's sneaking up on you until, until well, until he's got you. You sure as heck never notice him snatching innocent victims off the streets. But I do. I want badly to believe that he's real, especially now that I'm seeing him eye Mrs. Edelsworth. Oh, she's from Cuba. But met her husband here right before he shipped off to the Korean War. She's fancy and delicate and knows a lot about interior decorating. I think that's what she did in Cuba, maybe? Oh, and she makes flan. Wonderful, amazing, delicious flan. She does this just because she likes me and thinks, I'm a nice girl, as she puts it. And now Mr. Fulton licks his lips like a hungry lion every time she goes by. Right now, I'm beside myself. There's two of me. One saying, go get that son of a bitch. Make him eat his own toes. And then the me that has to go to my temp jobs, finish my AA at Seattle Central Community College, take my meds, and talk to Dr. Newman, who believes I'm crazy. I don't fault her. That's her job, after all. She doesn't call her patient crazy. That wouldn't be polite. She has to use other words like disaffected, disassociated, and antisocial. Though that last one's a little hurtful. My appearances in her office are court-appointed, so we have to figure out a civil way of working together. She tells me to use talk therapy and to talk to Mrs. Edelsworth about this and even to Mr. Fulton himself. You'll see, Alice. That he's not a, <clears throat> she has to clear her throat at this part, purple people eater. Just a nice man who lives on your block like everybody else. My roommate Margot, on the other hand, believes me. Of course she believes me. She thinks that the government is spying on her through her computer and that aliens are living on Capitol Hill, swiping people in government positions, pod people style, for biomechanical automatons to annoy the shit out of us, mostly at the DMV. She only ever uses burner phones and recycles them every two weeks, but with that last item, I can't tell if she's being sardonic or acting as a drug dealer. Uh, probably both. She thinks that I should take the bull by the horns. Oh. Mr. Fulton does look rather bull-like. And take that PPE down. That's what she calls him. But my question to her is always, and then what? I'm not exactly the warrior type. She always returns with a sideways smile and one of her punk answers. And she is one, too. The ripped clothes, safety pins, purple mohawk, and all. Simple, Al. Kick him in the balls. And even though I do appreciate her input, I'm not sure that big woolly purple monsters have balls and that if they do, I'm not certain what good that would do. Dr. Newman, however, tells me that I need to face my fears. Actually, Margot says something similar. You gotta kick your fear in the balls. She seems to be a pretty ball-kicking kind of person. Otherwise, it owns you. 
Chad Parker, my chem partner at the college, says that we can't sit idly by and allow bad things to happen to society. Otherwise, we become perpetrator by proxy. I think that he got that from one of his political science classes. Hops, maybe? Good point, Tad. Now I'm paralyzed by fear and guilt. And indecision. But someone's got to do something to save Mrs. E. And that someone's gotta be me. Why me? I have to stop you here and warn you. There's something important about me that I left out. You see, there's a darkness that follows me from place to place. I call him Mr. Imagination. That's something left over from when I was a kid. I saw his shadow projected on the wall behind my little coat rack. He's actually all shadow. That's his form. Like a ghost is energy, and tree sprites are made of wood. Water sprites, water. Fire demons, oh, well, you get the point. Anyhow, he popped up in my bedroom one night, and I screamed to see his horrible, stark white face leering at me. Yes, I saw his white face. I don't know how. I just did. And my parents dashed in. My mother screamed, Ah, que pasó? Oh, sorry. We were speaking Spanish at the time. My mom met my dad in Mexico. My mother screamed, What's the matter? And I pointed to the corner where the shadow man had appeared. She must have thought that I was pointing to the coat rack and saw that the rack projected a kind of human-like figure. Though I couldn't see it, it looked like a coat rack and coat to me. When I said, No, behind that, she smiled at me as if I'd said something little kid dumb. It's just your imagination, she told me. So I figured that that was his name. Anyhow, that's what he got stuck with. He came back the next night disguised as an ink splotch and told me not to panic. You want your parents to come, you little git? He asked. He spoke Spanish in a British accent. That was weird. They're not going to do much. They're just going to hospitalize you. They did. Look, I've come to help. You're in terrible danger. Find the necklace. Make me real. It's the only way I can protect you. What do I need protection from? I squealed. My father's voice interrupted. What's that? He flicked on a light and the ink splotch disappeared. I only saw him one more time, but that was... I'm not ready to talk about that. Dr. Newman thinks that he's my id and also a manifestation of my guilty conscience. He always says bad things about you, she tells me. Makes you feel bad about who you are. Wants you to change. I guess he sort of does, but I don't think he's a part of me. I think he, as she puts it, has a negative influence on me. Though, I did steal the necklace. Anyways, it's been a week since I spotted Mr. Fulton dogging Mrs. Edelsworth. I want to do something, but it's just so hard. I mean... He's really, really big. And I'm just me. And I'm so scared that I can't think of anything. Instead, I curl up in my window box and helplessly watch all of the near misses as he swipes at her and he hypnotizes her. I bark like a dog sometimes to wake her and then duck back quickly. That helps. Sort of. And then he becomes more determined. It's like become his mission 
and I'm running out of options. Mr. Imagination won't leave me alone about it. He whispers in my ears constantly, sometimes late at night or when I'm studying or like right now as I'm just idly wandering through the Crick Mart, jotting stuff in my journal. His guise is so thin that all that's left is voice, his dark and melodic, sensual and, and British voice. That's weird for an id, right? I always imagine he's Clive Owen or Jude Law, Tom Hardy maybe, even Benedict Cumberbatch. I don't suppose Orlando Bloom is out of the picture? His language is formal, like we're going to high tea with the queen or something. One does this, or one does that. Only with swear words. <laughs> but his favorite phrase is, let me out, let me out, let me out. And on and on forever. I wish he'd just shut up. At this lovely moment, he's telling me that I'm being a coward. He says he can get Mr. Fulton if I just let him. He goads me to dream him, Mr. Imagination, into being, whatever that means. And then I have the most violent thoughts with lots of stabbiness, flesh ripping, and eye gouging. No, I tell him. In my mind, of course. No violence. I can't do like I did last time. I need to be a constructive member of society. I need to curb my antisocial tendencies. <sighs> Fuck that up a twat, he surprises me with vulgarity. You're going to let that stupid cow tell you what to do, he chides. Tell you how to live your life and treat you like a simpering child. N -n no, a guy at the squishy machine gives me a weird look. I turn away. You're going to let him hurt Mrs. Edelsworth, your little Spanish friend. She's Cuban. Who cares? This isn't the point here. Remember the shark bite she showed you? And the question hits the center of me as if somebody socked me in the stomach with an eight-pound hammer. I remember her lifting her shirt all embarrassed. And there was a bite, like something from a sharp-toothed shark all down her side, her eyes tearing up because she didn't know how it got there, her face strained in pain and confusion. For a moment, my sadness won't let me breathe. I like Mrs. Edelsworth a lot. I suppose, I say slowly, I could confront him. You can do more than that. I've got a corn dog in one hand, a bag of chips in the other. Now customers are giving me that, what's with her stare? It's like they know. What? I ask them. You want to take a picture? They turn away. I'll think of something, I tell Mr. Imagination. He sighs angrily. <sighs> you can't be her. And he's so disgusted that I'm ashamed. But of what? I can't say. Because it doesn't even sound like he's talking to me. Fine, I stamp my foot a bit. I'll do something. I have a plan. A plan? He sounds incredulous. A good plan. And with that, I'm full of pepper, and I don't care who sees. And Mr. Imagination and his big old doubts can suck it. Yes, a plan. The plan. I can do this. I'll think of something.
was able to place me. Huzzah! My head is buzzing like a hive of bees. I'm so excited. But I must remember to take my medication. That's the most important part. I have to seem normal. Offices are normal central. Only the most boring creatures mill about there. If somebody with a handlebar mustache comes to work, he's just a funny guy with a mustache. Not the weirdo who insists on being a cowboy in a three-piece suit. Or, if somebody insists, say, on coming to work as a furry, purple, people-eating monster, he's just a big, round guy who wears suspenders, is all. Yes, I cyberstalked him. I heard from my upstairs neighbor, Kim Leung, who's working as an accountant but attending SCCC to be a social media rep, that you can request to have your temp agency place you in a specific spot. That is, if you have a contract with the business you want to work with. She kind of hooked me up over biscotti at our fave coffee shop on the corner. So if, like, the Betty Brown secretarial happens to service the downtown Pemco insurance people and they just happen to have a need for a part-time filing clerk, well, voila, there we go. I'm working at the same place as Mr. Fulton. How lucky that I totally joined two days ago. And man alive is this place, beige Arama. It's a world of white, windowless walls and mazes of beige, cloth-covered cubicles. I've gotten lost twice. It's like they want you to stay trapped here. Luckily, there's a kitchen in the middle, so that's a good marker. A secretary, who giggles at me like she's afraid of me, gives me the tour. She shows me the sparse decor which consists of uninspired black and blue prints of what can vaguely be described as southwest landscapes and fields of flowers. Beside the obligatory dusty bluish fake potted plant in a poorly painted white wicker basket to, you know, add some naturalists, there isn't much to this place. Everything smells of ozone and glade chemical flowers. It's an antiseptic bubble scalpeled away from reality. And it's so weird. I feel so sleepy the moment I sit at my tight sense deprivation cubicle. By the end of the day, I'm made of Z's. Everyone here has this worried expression on their face. They shiver and chuckle from caffeinated jitters as they mutter about how they wish they could escape this dullodrome. It's almost as if they know there's a monster in their midst. But Mr. Fulton doesn't run the show. He's just one of the rank and file. Seriously, I see him stuffed into his cubicle as I pass by with my little shopping cart file trolley to pick up files and whatnot. He barely leaves, more or less interacts with anybody. He's on the phone with customers, reminding them that their payment is due or that some paperwork needs to be submitted or whatever, I guess. I can only catch snippets. I'm kind of afraid that if he senses I'm listening, I'll become the new focus of his attention. I remember Tuesday, I was pumping myself up to confront him. I was going to burst in there and say, I'm on to you, buddy. I'm going to stop you. Okay, I didn't come up with much of a plan, but warnings are good, right? So I gather up a handful of folders and I'm ready to deliver it onto his desk with an accusing splat. You know, to work my way up to boldly confronting him. But he sits up straight, just before the whole messy, papery pile hits, and my breath freezes in my chest. Suddenly, the violence in me feels fake, weirdly in the wrong place, kind of, kind of 
adolescent. I mean, what if Dr. Newman is correct? What if this is all in my imagination? Man, it's weird. Like, something synomulant is blowing in the air. It's like, it's like, I'm not me. I'm this office android just quietly stacking and filing papers and eating my microwave mac and cheese on my lunch break. And that's it. I feel like prey. I clear my throat and his eyes slides towards mine, an alligator sunning on a rock waiting for lunch to wander in. And I lunge back a step and blink. He's just another helpless rabbit stuck behind a desk. He's waiting for me to say something, and my mouth is forming words. Big accusation-finding, angry-making words, so I say it. Here's your mail! Okay. That wasn't what I wanted to say. But for some reason, I couldn't think of anything else. And I couldn't stay either. Instead, I pull out my trolley and rush quickly down the aisle. I thought that he was a monster, but he's normal, and I'm... Wrong. All wrong. I need to quit here. I get a call from Tad on my lunch break, and I'm all, You need to help me. I'm in serious trouble here. And he's all, You need to stop sabotaging this. This is what it's like to have a real job. You just have to swallow your pride and your intelligence and put your nose to the grindstone. He tells me that Margot is looking for me and that she hasn't seen me for a week. That's not possible, I tell him. Tell her... I've only been here for a day. Then, this slips out of my mouth. Tell her it's freaky and I need her help. You see, that's what I'm talking about. What do you mean? I ask, honestly confused. He ignores me. I'll let her know, but you need to be normal, not a freak. That one struck me hard. I'm so glowing with shame that it puts a damper on my whole plan. I am being a freak. I need to quit this job, take my meds, and ignore my imagination because this is stupid, stupid, stupid. There's no purple people eater. I'm just being a psycho. I try to pick up my purse and just slink away, but I can't. I physically can't. My hands won't let me, and I don't know why. Instead, I go back to my file trolley. And just file. This is our kitchen. When you found my irritation. Being here before. Being here forever. I'm moving up slowly and the shit keeps. Moving up slowly and the shit creeps. Moving up slowly and the shit keeps. Moving up slowly. kitchen area at the center of the office curled into a fetal ball around a little plastic tub of microwave mac and cheese I don't remember why I collapsed only that it's exasperating trying to be normal then I look up and I see it it can't be there's purple smoke seeping from one of the air vents it makes me wonder I feel pulled to it like it's a treasure map, and I'm about to be rich. A co-worker trudges in. 
He's a fellow temp who's been here longer than I have. A lot longer. He claims all jokey that once you're in, you never get out. But it almost sounds like a not joke, like a confession. His eye kind of twitches as he says it. I do admit that the days here feel insanely long. They blur together. It is starting to feel as though I've never left for the day, that I just pass out for a bit and wake up photocopying. That can't be right, of course. I know that I'm just being irrational. I know that I have a hard time keeping track of time. It slips. It slips all the time. Sometimes I don't know where I am or what I'm even wearing, which is silly. Of course I'm wearing something different. And what if I'm wearing the same thing as Tuesday? I don't have an unlimited closet of infinity clothes. I just can't remember if Tuesday was yesterday or three days ago or five. You okay? The temp co-worker asks. Pete, I think that's his name. He asks kind of slow and scared. Have you, uh, lost an earring? I guess he's attempting to rationalize my state of floorness. I just... And then I blink at him. Pete? Yeah? I don't want to say it. I'm embarrassed. I'm afraid. He'll overhear. The he. And what if he's... But that's ridiculous. So I ask. What do you know about Mr. Fulton? He opens his mouth, but no words come out. He just stutters, all mumbly and weird, and then shrugs. He's he's just one of the claims adjuster guys. Big guy. Very friendly. That's the same exact thing everybody else says, word for word. Though I never see him eating. Must go out for lunch. That part seems really curious to him. I heard a rumor about him once. A rumor? That's good. Root him out. The first real lead I've had in in a long while. Yeah? What'd you hear? Pete winces painfully, like he's been hit with a shock collar. His mouth quivers, fighting to get out words. He groans a couple of times. Then he says, I hear that he's got season tickets to Storm Games. Storm Games? Women's basketball? Seriously? Seriously? I ask. Yeah. He shrugs. But that isn't it, is it, Pete? He breathes out. (sighs) Gives a shivery shrug. Come on, Pete. You didn't lower your voice to talk about basketball tickets, right? His eyebrows squeeze together. His forehead gets really tight. Tell me what's coming out of the vent, I say to him. He searches the room, then edges close up to me. He makes a word noise, then someone taps him on the shoulder. He jumps back from me, crying out, I didn't do it! The floor manager stands there with his long, dull face, blank yet judgy. Can we talk? He says to Pete. I want to tease him that somebody's in trouble. You know, in that sing-songy way. But Pete's face has gone all tight and red. He looks like he's about to cry. I'm kind of afraid for him. Really afraid. But, 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 sir, there's no need. I wasn't going to. Can we talk? The floor manager's voice gets more monotonally stern. But it's not my time, Pete whines. The perma frown on the floor manager's face deepens. 
It's just about the Jefferson Files, he explains. Pete sags with relief. Oh, okay. I can explain. He passes a smile back to me. I really need this job, he tells me. You know, student loans, the deep drowning type. Oh, I say, still a bit confused. Sure. Student loans. That makes sense. And he disappears around the corner. I somehow know I'll never see him again. That night, I hear Mr. Imagination. He's telling me that I need to wake up. Wake up right now. I'm in danger. How can I be in danger? I'm asleep in bed. You're not. You're curled round a tub of moldy macaroni and cheese upon the ground. And he's right. It's dark. I'm on the floor, cradling a crusty, empty mac and cheese tub. What's going on? I ask. Remember why you came here. I needed the money. You never have money, and that isn't the reason. Sure it is. Why else would I file eight hours a day? I hear him scoff, <laughs> like he's snorting mad. If a hallucination could shift its feet angrily, that's what he'd be doing. It's gotten to you, hasn't it? He says. What? What do you mean? Look in the vent. You saw something percolating from there. I imagined that. That's the one thing you haven't imagined. I don't need your self-loathing right now. I'm telling you, it's there. You're being manipulated. You know, maybe you're the problem. You're talking me into doing irrational things, getting me court-mandated psychiatrists. Here I am, finally doing something normal, something grown up, and you want me to ruin all of that. Maybe Tad and Dr. Newman are right. Maybe all you are is a figment of my imagination. Then tell me I'm wrong. Prove there's nothing there. I don't need to. You don't want to. If it turns out to be something, then you'd be forced to act. Oh, that's not... I want to tell him he's the crazy one. But then I'd just be telling myself that, which would be crazier. Okay, fine. What have I got to lose? And once I find nothing, you'll have to shut up forever. But I can't. Seriously, I want to act, but I don't even flop. Just nothing. Why can't I move? I admit that my tone is kind of whiny. I feel helpless. I expect him to besiege me with some snotty retort. Instead, he says it softly. Look, I can help you out. I don't need the help of my imaginary friend. I'm a grown-up. Adults don't say that. You can just shut up. Touch your necklace, he instructs me. Why? I can clear it from you temporarily. Feed you the energy you need to fight this thing. There's nothing that needs clearing. You're laying upon the floor. Clearly. He emphasizes the word with an extra helping of sarcasm. You're not doing well. You're already his food. Fine. I will. 
Shaky fingers search my neck and feel the cold vibrations of the metal of the pendant. It sings quietly, then something happens. Everything clarifies. The beige darkens to a dusty brown. Thick, greasy cobwebs chandelier across the ceilings. People shuffle by, bony as skeletons, skin sagging from them. But, I say transfixed. Remember, he whispers. I remember Mrs. Edelsworth. How frail and thin she looked like a skeleton when she last stumbled in front of me on my way to work. How pale, like somebody's been draining her dry. I thought for a while that it might have been some sort of a disease. Maybe she needed to see a doctor. I invited her in for some coffee and cookies, and we talked. Then I practically swallowed my tongue when she said it. I've been having these dreams. They are so real. They surround me, drown me. I am being followed by this big, hairy, blue creature. No, no, purple. He is purple. So terrible. It is like I am being haunted. It is so real that when I wake, there are eyes at my back as I walk about. He is there, constantly. He follows, but when I turn around, I see nothing. I see a large man. Ah, Dios mío, crazy. I must be going crazy. One dream. I am trapped down an alleyway. It is dark, and he is so large, he blocks out all of the light. He lunges for me, tears something from me. There are sirens, screaming, and then there is a sharp pain at my side. She lifted the side of her shirt just above her hip. Her side is covered with a large bite mark, like something with the mouth of a shark got her. I gasp and feel a jolt of anger sit me up from the floor. Now, I need to see it, the inside of that vent. I need to know what, if anything, is going wrong. I hop up onto the table, kicking aside all of the empty aluminum troughs of Mexican catered food. Tuesday is taco day, and get up on my tiptoes to look inside the vent. But the grating blocks my view. It's only there on four screws, so I grab my purse and take out my nail kit. I use the nail file to unscrew the nails and pull off the screen. Inside the two part of the vent is a little plastic red bowl, like the kind you put food into at a picnic. Inside of that is this noxious purple goo grossness, all jelly and foamy. The blowing air from the vent flows over and turns it into clouds that hit me like mustard gas. I choke. It has a shit smell mixed with the yuckiness of the oldest, crustiest gym socks ever forgotten in a locker. Ugh. My eyes water painfully and the bowl morphs before them. For a moment, I see my favorite thing in the world, a bowl full of purple M&Ms. That seems too impossible. Who makes purple M&Ms? I stare as hard as I can, but all I can see is M&Ms. I hear footsteps in the hall. I go still. Shit. What if it's... But the footsteps pass. Phew, I whisper. The footsteps turn around. I shove the bowl back in the air vent and scramble the screws back into place with not enough time for the fourth. So I throw it in a corner, crash into the chair, and put my phone to my ear.
Uh-huh. I say to no one. Mr. Fulton creeps a beady eye around the corner. Oh, yes. I do like New York in June. I hear it's got a great big moon. Dumb. But Bugs Bunny was all I could think of. Fulton just watches me. He crushes down that big caveman brow, sticks out that large lower lip. They really like cars over there, I hear. Hold on. I clear my throat <clears throat> and say to Fulton, Can I help you? All haughty. He just sneers his eyes into sharp little slivers, turns, and storms off. I mumble something stupid. I like African violets, too. And then the phone drops from my numb fingers. That was a close one. I am pissed. The worst part of it is, I'm pissed at myself. Because I knew. Knew, knew, knew. Down to the core of me. Dr. Newman was wrong. Tad was wrong. Mr. Fulton is a demon. And I'm here to do a job. Tad calls. Of course Tad calls, just as I get myself psyched up to make my move. There's evil old Fulton, sitting there in his cubicle, staring holes into his computer screen, heaving gruesome monster breath. My cell rings. His eyes switch over to mine. So I duck into Pete's empty cubicle. What? I whisper shout. What's up, Alice? He sounds all annoyed. Uh work. I'm all annoyed right back. Dude, this is the second time you've blown me off. What? That throws me off my stride. My phone beeps at me. We were going to meet at Volunteer Park and study. You bring the books, I bring the chips. Fulton disappears. Tad, I say, I, I gotta go. My battery's dying. You said that the last time, too. Can't you recharge that thing? I search my purse have a cold realization as I do it. No, I tell him helplessly. I can't. My charger's gone missing. It's, it's, I, I guess I have to buy a new. But I know that it doesn't matter what I say. I'm talking to dead air. Crap, something's gone wrong, really wrong. I need to leave here. Okay, time to enact that plan. Time to think up that plan. But all I do is wander automatically back to my cubicle like it's just another happy day in the neighborhood. I'm purple people-eater food. I knew this was a stupid idea. Hey! shouts a voice. I turn slowly. Margot stands there, all teeth and shit-eating grin. What's cooking good-looking? She's got a basket of care package in hand. I tremble a tearful smile at her. I'm filled with a rush of gratitude, like a shipwreck survivor, and she's the SS. Let's get the hell out of here. Man, she says. So this is what an office looks like. She's still shouting. Like totally 1984, dude. Then she leans in and mumbles. So, how's the deal with the... 
M-O-N-S-T-E-R. Huh? You know, rawr. She claws the air and makes an angry animal face. Fierce Fulton. Oh, I can't remember. God! Everybody here stinks. Bathe much, monkeys? She turns back to me. I hadn't seen you much at the Rancho Del Arpleso, so I figured you're still busy with the staking out and all. It takes time to make the right move. I got you. Sheer plan, man, she winks. Two security guards show up in their little olive green uniforms. Excuse me, ma'am, says one of them. Look at this, she hooks a thumb at him. He thinks I'm a lady, <laughs> she snorts. Ma'am, this is a place of business. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm just visiting with my friend. He blinks a robot blink at her. Ma'am, this is a place of business. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. He grabs her. You do not grab Margot. She will, well, she'll kick you in the balls. But they've got her too well gripped, and they easily sidestep her steel-toed Doc Martens. They drag her out. She groans angrily as she struggles. I watch them pull her from view. That's not good, I think. But I'm kind of sleepy. I want to get back to my database. I do? Why did I want to do that? I hear one of the guards down the hall shout out with an, Ow! And Margot rushes back in and shoves the basket in my hands. Got your message. Sending you a nice order of salami. She gives a thumbs up. Uh, I don't know how to answer that. She puts a flat hand beside her lips to do an aside. It's like a spiritual taser. Really good for paralyzing our purpley-haired friends. Go get them, champ. She waggles her eyebrows just before a pair of hands grab her and snatch her away. I'm going, she yells. I can hear her stomping out, kicking a plant as she goes. My spirit sinks, cut adrift again. I look inside the basket. Under the crusty kitchen cloth, there's an ebony stick, polished to a shine. It looks a bit like a dildo, but flat on the end with little spikes coming out. A pentagram is carved into the flat end with Hebrew letters all around the edges. Margot always has the weirdest crap. I shove the basket under my desk, get back to my database, and the whole experience fades from my mind like a dream after waking. that I'm writing this down. It proves that something is happening. I can see it as I go over the words, but the remembering, not so much. Ever since I touched that necklace, I felt this war inside me between this crazy buzzing energy and this icky, squishy cloud that makes everything all purple and fuzzy and prickly. Now, this next bit isn't very nice. 
It's the worst. But it's what needed to happen. I left out a part, you see. We don't go out, we office people. No, I'm pretty certain that that's true now. We just take GI showers in the powder room, you know, because we didn't have time at home, right? There's a clothes bin inside a side room that people mistake as their bedroom closet. And no, we don't know where they came from. Sleep? We just pass out at our desks and wake up as if we've always been there. And I only know this thanks to the necklace. As for eating, that's simple. That's the magic of catering. I thought that it was only occasional, Taco Tuesdays. I wasn't sure why nobody ever brought their lunch. How should I know? I've never worked in an office before. Could be a thing. All I know is that when the caterer shows up, everybody stampedes to the kitchen like a tack of the rabid office workers and assaults the big tins of foods like pigs at a trough. It gets so crazy, I can barely snap away a handful of chips. No words. They're too busy growling and grabbing and chomping down. And then, as soon as it started, they just stand up and wander away peacefully back to their cubicles. Weird. Mr. Fulton never shows up. Sometimes I catch him standing across the way, watching us eat. A small line of drool falls from his lips. You know that he tells people what to do? The floor manager. Even the security guards. Which is... That's odd, right? At one point, the floor manager tells me to file a giant stack of papers, and so I pull a Fulton and say, You do it. I smile at him because I think it's a chuckle. He doesn't. Excuse me, he says, the voice of Mr. Angry Pants. I cringe and answer, I mean, right away, sir, and scoop up the files and tiptoe over to Deborah's cubicle. Why am I tiptoeing? She's the perm who waves and gives a nice smile when I see her in the kitchen playing solitaire. That must make her nice, right? Psst! Deborah, I whisper. I don't think she can hear me. She doesn't even turn around. I look around to see if anybody sees me. Psst! I say a bit louder. Still, she stays concentrated on her work, but she stops typing. For a moment, I'm not sure if she knows I'm in the cubicle, then... Yes? Her eyes are fixed on her computer screen. Been there. Deborah, I say. Yes? You've been here a while, right? Yes. Very obedient. So, uh, gosh, Mr. Fulton... Do you know him? Yeah. Do you know what he does exactly? He's just one of the claims adjuster guys. A large fellow. Very friendly. Yeah, but... I notice on her cubicle that her placard indicates she too is a claims adjuster. Yet she's never told off the security guards or the floor manager. What does that entail exactly? I mean... How is his job different from yours? She takes a breath. She's ready to tell me something. Her job? But she doesn't. It's become mysterious. I, I, I don't know, she tells me. And for the first time, there's a hint of emotion. Curiosity. 
That's a good question. But he's in charge, right? No. Oh, oh no. Her posture perks up straight and spiffy. Why would you say that? I just thought that there's something wrong with him. She pauses for a long time, bites her lip like she's about to cry. Do you want to know what he is? What he really is? I see his head dart from behind a cubicle. I think I'm about to cry with her. No! I'm good, I say. Got a file? Uh, got anything for me? Her shoulders sag. No, she says wistfully. So nobody knows exactly what he does and that he's absolutely not in charge. So why does he have authority? And what is he? Then Deborah gets fired. It happens on a Tuesday. On that day, I watch her slink back to her cubicle all wide-eyed and lost, shivering. She slams personal things into a box. Then the two security guards show up. No, she whispers. Ma'am, we're here to escort you. I said no. I can do it myself. They blink at her. Everyone in the office holds their breath. The guards grab her. No, no, she screams as they drag her from the cubicle. Ma'am. The guard strains to speak as he pulls her away from the cubicle she's grabbed onto. We're here to escort you out of the building. They rip her from the cubicle. She yells, no, again, but he continues. We need you to leave in a calm, orderly manner. She hooks onto a plant, which drags across the floor. No, 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 I don't want to be fired. I don't. We'll need your parking pass, your keys. She kicks at his face and slips through his grip, then rushes to the emergency door next to my cubicle. They leap onto her. She rolls over and pleads with me. Don't let them fire me. He'll eat me. And then they drag her away, far away, down the hallway. And then something strange happens. Business as usual. Everyone goes back to what they were doing, as if there was never an emergency. And, oddly, so do I. It all feels like a dream. Like it happened somewhere else, to someone else. Something I watched on TV last night. Yeah, that must be it. Already, I'm starting to forget. And then, blackness. I'm a little girl, sitting in our cozy little house in Mexico. I remember this place so vividly. That was the corner where Daddy used to put up the Christmas tree. That was the rug I saw a feral black cat cross over one time. I'm sitting on Daddy's lap. I'm smaller, maybe five years old. I remember my nights with Daddy in his comfy chair in front of the old stone fireplace, half his face lit by the orange glow of the fire. He would tell me things, secrets no humans should know. Do you know what apocrypha means? He asks. And then he would explain the way 
the world turned and the secret connections between the stars, the energy fields that wove invisibly across the earth and the secret spiritual things that roamed in its rocks, in its water, in its wind, and the terrible creatures that roared in its fires. He has a book open, a giant book that he hides in the walls. Mommy is not to know. It is a leather-bound book with a star in a circle on it. It is the book of secrets. He flips through it. Now, Alice, he speaks in Spanish, but Mommy is still learning. She is from the States up above. I need you to pay perfect attention. You see this creature? He points to an illustration, a giant, woolly, purple creature with the biggest, giant sharp-toothed jaw curled into a smile around its face. I don't remember this part from childhood, the happy part. It's a projection, as if he's showing the picture to me right now as an adult, because this thing is too scary for little me to remember, too big to encompass in my little mind. He is very dangerous, a demon, he tells me. He farms his prey, fattens them. He secretes a hypnotic gel from his salivary gland to mesmerize his victims into a placid and forgetful state. I see the picture of it, puking purple gel. I remember the gel from the vent in the little red plastic bowl. You must get yourself excited but focused. Stay focused. It is the only way to see what is real. Lose focus for a moment and you get pulled back under. Now, this part is important. Use all the weapons that are available and get away from him quickly. How do I neutralize him? I ask this. Wait, I ask this? What a weird militant child I was. My father frowns at me in concern. Alice, you just need to get out of there alive. I can fight him. Alice, he grips my arm and looks directly into my eyes. Just do as I tell you. He shakes me. But it's not him. It's the floor manager gripping my shoulder. Are you okay? he asks. I lift my head from the desk and nod a bit sleepily. Cool, he says. File's got to be sorted. Yes, of course, I drone, but it feels like pleading. I feel bad as I stroll down the hall with my little file cart. I've been here a week and seen nothing weird. Wait, have I been here a week? It feels longer. I think... Mr. Fulton, so far, has done nothing to inspire any suspicion. Everything's been status quo, right? Right? I pass by his cubicle thinking how dumb I've been with my crazy accusations. Crazy girl. Me. Can't I do anything right? Then I overhear a phone conversation he's having with a client. Yes, I'm sorry, Mrs. Bertrand. He says in that nasal voice, which makes him sound like one of those teacher's pet type kids who's nasty to his peers. I really am. 
I know, I know. Your son has cancer, but your policy doesn't cover chemo. Yes, I know it's considered standard nowadays, but because he missed a physical last year, he's now considered high risk. You did opt for plan C, but that doesn't cover the content. He breathes heavily as a woman wails on the other line. <sighs> now, ma'am, now, ma'am, I understand, but this isn't my problem now, is it? I can hear screaming, sobs, begging, pleading with every ounce of her soul. I think he must feel bad, but no. <laughs> he giggles low and guttural, then does a fake sympathy, real patronizing voice. I know, I know, it is sad. Yes, I understand that you're pain in full, and we thank you. Well, I guess you'll have to get a third mortgage then, won't you? Listen, Mrs. Bertrand, I simply can't go against policy. Yes, I know your son was an athlete and very... I didn't mean to refer to him in the past tense. But the way he says it, you know he did. I just thought that since he's only got a 20% chance of survival, it would only be practical. Oh, well, there's no need for that. But he's not angry at the name she just called him. He's, he's proud, ecstatic. But I am very angry. I look at the file holder on his cubicle. That little clear plastic shelf thingy that holds all the files? I look at all of the denied claims, all of those lives he's ruined. Listen to the glee in his laughter as he hangs up his phone, and something in me just snaps. I think shark bite. I think Pete, Deborah, Mrs. Edelsworth. Suddenly, I know what he is and what I'm here to do. I march over to the janitor's closet, take out the socket wrench, duct tape, and the extension cord. I whack Mr. Fulton over the top of his head and tie him to his chair, stuff his mouth with tissue and wrap him with duct tape, making him look like a silver mummy. Then I stand back, heaving and seething. Oh, crap. What have I done? I can hear the word antisocial being shouted at me by a judge, by Tad, by Dr. Newman. What do I do? I hear footsteps, so I act quickly and then scatter. When the floor manager arrives at my cubicle, I'm not very surprised. He escorts me to the very back of the office where I sit in front of the boss's desk. She smiles at me calmly. She's a small African-American woman, very solidly built with sensible locks of hair, very professional. Her outfit, too, screams sensible in that Hillary Clinton pantsuit way with her round Queen Elizabeth-type brooch adorning the label. She has a sort of perma-smile on her face, like she's a ventriloquist dummy. She's in charge. She never leaves her office. Ever. After my job interview when I was hired, I completely forgot she existed. Ms. Wander, your services won't be needed anymore, she tells me in her elegant rote. But I don't go back to my cubicle. 
I go back to Deborah's. I'm too sad to go anywhere else. I wish I'd read that book in my dreams, learned something about how to get rid of this creature. I should go back to that vent and dump that purple goo, but he'd just puke up more, and I'm certain he has, and I know that there's more than one, one for every vent. I'll forget before I can get them all. I concentrate. He told me to concentrate. I remember tying up Mr. Fulton, then taping papers over the entrance of his cubicle, wanting to seal him away from the rest of humanity. The office version of prison, kind of. I remember... I remember that no one was around, and the floor manager showed up the moment I sat down. Nobody saw me taping. Nobody heard me, so how... Focus. He told me to focus. That's when I realized that that little pink rectangular thing on the floor near Deborah's cubicle is not an eraser. It's a thumb. I'm here to do a job, I say to myself. I rush back to Mr. Fulton's cubicle. The paper's torn away. So's the tape on the chair, and the extension cord is on the floor, shredded into wires. But no Mr. Fulton. He's gone. But where did he... I hear growling behind me. I turn. Oh, there he is. Mr. Fulton is heaving, towering over me. I remember what my dream father told me. Stay excited, but concentrate. Focus, I think. Focus. I hear you've been fired. His voice whines sarcastically from his shiny marshmallow face. But that isn't him. That isn't what he's saying. His face blurs, grows purple whiskers. So soon, after plump and juicy Deborah, I don't know if I can get one more in, but you look so very tasty. His sharp, shark grin grows wider and redder and curls all the way around his face, half his head. He walks toward me. Use all weapons at your disposal. I remember my dream father telling me. Fulton's desk. Pens. Pencils. Ruler. Stapler. Paper hole puncher. Why does nobody ever have a letter opener? He grabs my arm. Squeezes tight. It hurts. Forget about the pain. Dream father whispers. I swing away to the desk. Grab the stapler. Slam it into his face. Staple his forehead. He yells out painfully and slams me into the cubicle hard. I hear a crack. My back? The wall? I reach for the long and heavy hole puncher on his desk, but his hand catches my arm. Then I do an aerobatic Cirque du Soleil movement. I leap around backward and grab the waste paper basket behind me. Damn, I didn't know I had that in me. Fight with all your body, yells the voice in my head. I swing my whole body as I throw the waste paper basket into his face. He lurches backward, falling to the ground. My arm slips from his pinchy fingers. I run, leaping over him to my cubicle. His feet pound down the corridor toward me. I'm fishing under my desk through all the paperwork and files to get to my purse. Come on, stupid purse! Kick him in the balls, I remember Margot saying. I pull up her magic wandy paralyzer thingy, whatever it is, purple Mr. Fulton 
dives at me, grabs both shoulders and yanks me from my cubicle. I'm high up from the ground, kicking and pulling and grabbing. One hand slithers up my shoulder and clamps onto my neck. He's gonna twist. Fight with your heart, Mr. Imagination shouts. You fight with your heart, stupid! I squawk. I sway forward, then buck my head back and smash my face into his. His grip loosens. I'm dangling sideways. Fingers brush the ground, but finally grip what I want. I grab the magic wandy thingy and jab the pentagram into his body. He jolts, drops me, flips back in a mess of seizures, flappity-flopping like a fish on dry land. Somehow, I've managed to stay upright and keep the wand stabbed into him. He shakes, then smokes, then shivers dissipate to a shudder, and then he's still, mouth frozen open like one of those roaring purple taxidermied wolves. Well, his type of purple wolf, I guess. Everyone in the office has fallen and seizures, but then they sit up, blinking, their eyes are children's, seeing the world for the first time. They look tired and dirty, hair all greasy, clothes stained and rumpled. What time is it? The giggling receptionist, now no longer giggling, asks. But nobody knows. It smells awful, like somebody sprayed the room with Axe B.O. spray, musky and kind of pukey. Then I realize that that's me, too. I look at all of them. I think I need a shower, I tell them. Mrs. Edelsworth has us over for tea and flan. Oh, flan. Beautiful, beautiful flan. Why not celebrate? I had a dream, she announces. A champion flew down from the sky and fought this terrible blue giant. Purple, Mrs. E. Purple. Defeated him with the jawbone of an ass. Stapler, jawbone, tomato, tomato. Yeah, he was an ass, all right, Margot shouts. You were in there for a month and a half. It felt like a week, I exclaim. Hope you took care of Mrs. E for me. Margot winks and shows me the toe of her boot with a nod. I don't think he had balls, though. I point out. Well, I... I don't know what he has. Only when I was fighting him, it felt natural. Like a knee-jerk reaction. I wasn't thinking. I was just punching and flipping. I did a backflip, for real. I never even climbed the rope in gym class. The whole thing just felt like I was born to do it. Mrs. Edelsworth tilts her head in interest. But Margot is staring at me with huge, freaked-out eyes, like she's scared of me or, or in awe, like I'm one of those weird, freaky-faced, roaring statues from some tribal cult or the second coming. It makes me really uncomfortable. I decide to change the subject. It's amazing that nobody knew that those people were gone. Some of them have been in that office for years, at least, that's what the nice police officer told me. I apparently solved a bunch of open missing persons cases all at once. Then I remember Deborah and Pete. Well, not all of them. And that giant purple thing? What the hell? 
says Margot. I went to the library, I say all excited. I had to dig deep into the University of Washington occult stack where the really obscure stuff, apocrypha, I use my dream dad's word, was. It was a demon of some sort. Seattle PD didn't know how to categorize it. I mean, they said we killed it in self-defense, but since they didn't know what it was, they just let it go. But I have to say, everything I read about these things, they don't normally run offices or even have that kind of capacity. They go out and hunt and bring their prey back to their nest. This one didn't have to, so it must have just been pleasure hunting. Or or old habits die hard, I guess. And how does this thing, I wonder, come to run an office? Mrs. Edelsworth asks the question we were all afraid to ask. Yeah, Margot pipes up. I mean, couldn't the pigs just have called their work? They were right there. How did no one find them? I look to both Mrs. E and Margot, and I can't say. dressed man with short slicked back hair pushed the gilded cart down the vast hallway the hall was dark but filled with beautiful tribal pieces from every continent some never seen by any outside of their tribes all were ancient thick polished oak doors broke up the hall all were locked up tight containing their terrible secrets as the man ushered the cart down the hall, he could only say what half of those secrets were, and shuddered at the memory of them. He did not like this place, but the pay was good, and for him, that was enough. The cart itself was an oddity of glass jars, filled with oils and tinctures, herbs and pills. Some had ugly fetal shapes, with large, milky eyes and tentacles or seaweed-like tendrils. The forms curled and dirty amber liquid. The man at the cart didn't ask what they were. The old man couldn't pay him enough to be curious. He rolled up to the large wooden double door at the end of the hall, the one with two large guards and three-piece suits standing at either side. Cerebus in his suit, thought the man at the cart with a bit of amusement. He told them he was there for the old man's daily treatment. They grunted a response. They knew his assistant when they saw him. He went through. The old man sat in his wheelchair, a creaking wicker thing, in front of the French windows that overlooked the vast and well-manicured garden. It was something out of a pastoral painting, lovely rolling fields with trees and gatherings of soft flowers. Something he'd always wanted. He hated it so. The inside of the 2,500-room mansion was more like the inside of a Bosch painting, 
all the two-headed creatures roaming about freely as their wont, chewing up the pink little angels. That was more like it. Ah, Jacobs, cried out the old man, though he never turned around. There was no point to it. How spins the world? Most things are running according to plan, Jacobs, the man at the cart, replied. He rolled the cart next to the old man, who turned his wheelchair and smacked his lips at the feast on it. Most? asked the old man. Uh, well, Jacobs winced. A slight hiccup in the purple department. But that really is a small sub-department of a sub-department. Not anything we can't smooth over. So many departments. The old man mumbled as he uncapped bottles and poured pills and oils into the ceramic bowl at the center of the cart. You must learn that nothing is ever small, remonstrated the old man. Even a small stone can cause large ripples. Its place can set off inestimable cascades of events that can result in cataclysm. I assume that the one who neutralized him is the one herself? The old man's voice was hopeful. Had she passed the test? Jacobs held his breath as he emptied the squiggly thing from the amber liquid into the ceramic bowl. It jolted and shivered, clamored to escape the rounded edges, hoping to rush back to the far away from where it hailed. Unknown, sir. There were no witnesses, and she had supernatural assistance. The old man's face scrunched into a rage. He stabbed the squiggling thing with a fork. Why must you evade me, coward? He shouted at the windows, then stuffed the quivering, bleeding thing into his mouth and crunched it between his teeth. A swallow, and he heaved a great breath. His pupils expanded. He held his chest. Some of the wrinkles on his cheeks smoothed. Sir, said Jacobs, most girls couldn't get past this creature. She is, the old man choked. She is not most girls. His breathing calmed. He let out a slow breath and composed himself. For her? He is an aperitif. If we're to smoke her out, we'll need to make her work harder, make her prove herself. But there's so many within the lineage, Jacobs protested. Not to worry, Jacobs. There are many tests yet. We've narrowed it down. We'll find her. And then? The old man chuckled. <laughs> You'll see. Another well-dressed man popped his head through the double doors. Sir, your 430 is here, the old man sneered. Send him in, he said with a sigh. Position me well, Jacobs. Yes, sir, Jacobs answered. And he pulled the chair around into the power spot of the room, the one where the appointment would be blinded by the light, and the old man would appear as a shadowy figure. One of the two armed guards by the door ushered a plain, round little man in a bow tie and a neat but twitchy mustache into the room. Ah, Scalari, exalted the little man. 
I see you have refreshed yourself. He wore an all-white suit, as was his custom, as if it were a uniform of sorts. Not that I require your approval, the old man grumbled. Ah, oh, well, he fluttered his delicate pudgy hands. You are forgiven, as always. Scolari's sneer tightened into bared teeth at this. Forgiven, he spat out. That's always his line, words as empty as his presence. The little man tilted an inquiring look at him, blinked, then decided it wasn't worth it. In the old man's mind, he dubbed the little man the Belgian for his fussiness, his quaint old-fashioned dress, and the little black mustache that adorned his upper lip like that round man on the face of the mystery novel. And though his form was solid, his cheeks bright and cherubic, his eyes shone with stars, with an ethereal quality that no one in the room could describe. "'I assume that you're getting on well?' The little man's voice was wispy. "'My jail is comfortable,' Scolari replied. "'Oh!' the little man was hurt. "'Do not frame it in such a way. "'You have gotten everything you have asked of us.' "'How ungrateful of me!' "'We wanted to know if there was anything you required of us.' "'The old man stared, dumbfounded. "'He let out a hot breath. "'Don't play me for a fool,' he told the little man. "'I know why you're here.' "'Scolari!' "'A hint of warning in the little man's voice.' Why do you jest? Why can you not be content with the wonders and beauty that you have? This place, wonders, beauty. Do you know what the worldwide murder rate was last year? How tyrants of industry and government murder and rape and pillage with no thought of your punishment or your reward? Do you see what the pestilence of humanity does to your earthly paradise, choking it with their plastic wrappers, their coal dust, and their dead electronic devices? Not a thought to consequences. No thought to those whose fingers and lungs had to bleed to bring them such things. And you call me a devil? Scolari, you must learn to live in peace. I must learn to obey, you mean. Do not do what you are planning. There will be consequences. You mean the huntress will find me, put me in my place? I mean consequences. They smiled at each other, each as stern as the other. I'm not worried. I act according to my conscience. Can you say the same? The little man had no reply. Yes. <laughs> Scolari chuckled. You can only act as you are programmed. But I must bear the weight of decisions. And when I decide, there will be such an unleashing that the universe will scream in terror. And he shall finally know the weight of my punishment. 
The little man quivered. Please, Galari, please, he whispered. Don't make us do it. You will not like the result. The old man leaned forward, triumphant. I'm planning on it. He smiled, a sharp alligator smile. I'm watching from the wall. That was Books of Alice, Chapter 1. Alice versus the Purple People Eater. This world will come to war.